0: Globe as church. Um, one of the things I love about how you're doing it here at Oikos is that you're committing to the public reading of scripture. Um, it's really great to just hear that passage in full and allow the story of God to really speak for itself. Um, when we listen to these stories from scriptural history that are from a very different world to our own and a very different time to the one we live in, is that sometimes when we hear the full sweep of all those details. It uh, can be a little bit difficult to track with everything that's going on. I don't know about you, but as you listen to that passage, you may have felt at times you were listening to a rather gruesome ritual. And then you might have felt that the pages were stuck together and we were in a BBC good food recipe for a short while. And um, you may have then felt that it, we, we started to talk about some controversial and her, you know, horrific moments between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Um, and the story seems to switch a lot, doesn't it? And you may have felt as you listen to that passage, "Whoa, what's going on? There's a few verses about circumcision towards the back end of chapter 12. Um, and sometimes that happens when we're listening to a very different context and a very different story. I'm not going to promise that we'll unpack all of the intricacies of all those details tonight. And um, what we will try and do is we'll try and dive into that story and just get a clear picture of what these words might have meant to the people who first full glory of what is God really saying to these people and which elements of that might really resonate with us in 2021 living in Erdington. Um, So first few things just to sketch a bit of a scene of what's really happening here if you look at a lot of biblical scholarship on the story that's about to unfold that we're just hearing about um, in Exodus chapter 12 lots of uh, people who've studied these things for longer years than I have would tell you that the second uh, most important moment in redemptive history up until this point is about to happen. And um, most biblical scholarship would say that the event of creation uh, happens and nothing else on the same level of drama and impact happens through the rest of scripture up until uh, what's happened. So we're about to major event of, in the theater of human history. God is about to move again um, in power at something like. The level that he did in creation and there's lots of parallels between what happens in Genesis 1 and what's about to happen that God is now in this chapter telling Moses about and giving him some instructions to pass on to the Israelites so let's just wrap our heads around a few of those things here and see what's really going on in Genesis 1 what what we're told about is this picture of a swirling darkness we know that there's chaos we know that there's emptiness Um, And we know that there's water there. We're told that the spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep and there's dark. The surface of the deep, we get this and into that chaos formlessness, um, God speaks. The first thing that happens is we get a word from God. He says something. And in that word seems to land somewhere somehow. And out of the impact of that word into that chaos and that formless darkness, that seems quite destructive and, uh, and full of frightening power, we start to see life and order and beauty start to emerge out of the chaos. That's what's happened in creation. There's never been a power scene like it, and there's never been a moment scene like that one. Uh, what's about to happen in Exodus, the biblical writers' parallel, when they narr- narrate to us what goes on, a lot of the same threads from the Genesis story. We have swirling waters. Uh, where do you see the swirling waters? Well, the Israelites are about to walk through the middle of the Red Sea, um, and that to them was a deeply significant event. Now, let's get, uh, let's get this straight. It was an actual historical event. God really did split a specific ocean. There was a specific body of water. They literally saw it divide and they walked through the middle of it. But to these Israelites, that was a deeply symbolic moment. It wasn't just an ocean. And um, you see, in the ancient world at that time, uh, the waters, particularly swirling waters and oceans, used to represent to ancient people that surrounded and neighbored the Israelites and to the Israelites themselves. And they used to uh, uh, represent chaos and also human evil. And so when you find writers at that time writing about uh, evil empires, the way that human beings can descend into sin and become cruel oppressors that hurt and destroy each other. um, And when the threat of humanity seems to get so out of control that it's just gonna cause absolute destruction and, and pure chaos, they're often pictured as waters, swirling waters that we can't control, just like the oceans, too powerful for us. Um, and so human evil empires that, that unleash wickedness on the earth, they're often visualized in that way. The creation stories that the Hebrews heard from the other peoples neighboring them, from the Canaanites and the Mesopotamians and some of the others, always pictured that they always began the same way with a swirling mass of waters. And what was different about the Hebrew creation story that we see in the Bible and some of the others that they heard from their neighbors was that usually a series of cosmic beasts would emerge out of the oceans and they would threaten the whole future of the cosmos. They'd come to destroy everything that existed. And the gods that the surrounding people worshipped tended to rise up against these evil cosmic beasts and fight against them. And they didn't fully conquer evil usually in those stories and there was some sort of truce that was agreed. And usually that, these other people surrounding the Israelites used to use that to rationalize why evil still exists on the earth. We know some of the names of these cosmic beasts that they imagined coming out of the waters because we hear about them in the pages of scripture. So we hear about Leviathan and Rahab and Yam. Um, a few, If we fast forward a few hundred years into the future, Isaiah will look back on this event when the children of Israel walked through the waters to freedom, those swirling waters, and he will pick up one of those old stories of one of the neighboring peoples of the Israelites. you'll compare it to that same moment when when one of these other peoples celebrated their God conquering one of these evil beasts that symbolized chaos and destruction coming out of those waters of humanity. And what's going to happen to the Israelites is they're not going to have a poem. they're not going to have uh, some sort of song about it. They're actually going to physically walk through that event. They're going to walk through this symbol of the chaos that was about to destroy them. Um, in exodus 12 they're going to walk right through the middle of it and then who's going to walk in and get consumed by it those enemies that were about to crush them in this chapter that we're reading about now and they get consumed by the waters that the israelites might have uh, had in mind when they thought about egypt so we're about to see this echo of genesis we've got the swirling the destruction and israel are living in this at the moment what did the waters represent to them it represented them 430 years of suffering they'd had about 12 or 13 years of generations. Um, but, sorry, 12 or 13 generations crushed in this evil, oppressive slave.
1: Egyptian rule. We've got these pharaohs that are willing to. sort At moments when. Genocide seems like it's about to happen and it looks like the end is coming for the Israelites. They've lived in the midst of the. Is this chaos and these swirling waters that they're about
0: to walk through? Um, this group of people that have been crushed, oppressed, and heartbroken. What happens next in the Genesis story? Over those, and it lands somewhere. And similarly, in this passage, this is maybe the the moment where our parallel really comes to its uh, c- clearest focal point. In this passage, this seems to be the moment when that word of God is released. God is now saying to Moses, this is what's about to happen. So a little bit like he said in the creation story, let there be light. There's now a fresh word coming from the mouth of God. It lands somewhere, this time in a human heart. Moses receives it. He's
1: find ourselves if we're
0: going to in between when the word and when the light breaks out. Events now about to happen, but that word hasn't created, it hasn't.
1: release the momentum yet that's going to create you might have in your mind when you're thinking about what's happening in Exodus um, something that looks a bit like this. um and
0: it was supposed to represent what happens in response to our prayers at that wave to this girl who's praying and um, if we were somewhere in this picture we might be right at the bottom of that wave god has spoken the waters have heaped up and a, a, a dramatic change is about to come two nations are going to be
1: changed forever uh, But actually the globe is never going to be the same. We're going to see this moment in human history that's going to be in
0: thousands. Of years. It's going to inspire various different movements in human history. It's going to be a cataclysmic moment of kingdom impact. God is about to speak. He's about to move. And the earth is never going to be the same again. And that unprecedented sudden move of the spirit of God is going to come against the back of a millennium of waiting, disappointment and pain. And that's often the way these things work in the kingdom of God and in human history. But there we are.
1: And that's where we are in chapter 12. Um, three hinges. The desperate people
0: from one direction to the next. The people who are going to be caught up in this move are going to be blown away. No one's going to have anticipated the scale and the speed with which the Spirit of God is going to rush in and change everything overnight, literally. And um, it's going to be a hinge moment, and these often happen through human history. In fact, I was reading recently um, a classic book written in 1904 by a, a Scottish um, minister, a guy called Reverend James Burns, and he'd
1: studied a number of revivals.
0: he writes about them in classic work um, this pattern of revival history is a little bit like what we see in this chapter so think about those hinges think about that tidal wave that's about to crash over egypt and then uh, let's listen to these words together this is what james burns said when he studied
1: revivals He looked at a whole you i can find the mouse i might be able to see that uh if, um, i think i can hopefully see this for you so this is
0: James Burns said, This weekend, if I can move that out of the way.
1: Uh, can't quite see, or, see your mouse there, Andy. Sorry, guys, I'm A second. Now that seems to be, you know, trying. You can see this on your screen, so perhaps I don't need to read it to you. This uh,
0: gentleman who studied revival here and what he was trying to point out is something very similar to what we see in this passage. He talks about how in the uh, immediate moments they're foaming, they're behind the barricade, the times are ripe and then what he talks about is about once more the long and bitter night has ended, the dawn
1: is at hand for the fullness of the time.
0: The, uh, you know, Genesis. No, let's go back to those three hinges on which the doors of history are about to swing. Um, I mentioned about the justice of God, the mercy of God, and the prayers of a desperate people. Those three things come together that we see these sudden uh, hinge moments in human history. And if you think about the justice and the mercy of God, that's often the thing that's called into question at times like the times these Israelites are living through you ever hear people complaining about God or questioning him, in our generation, what they'll often talk about is they'll talk about uh, when people are questioning God, of people being sent to hell, you'll often hear people or perhaps people would read a passage of scripture like the one with luctions, the lives of all the firstborn sons were taken overnight and I think well how could God be a fair God, how could he be a loving God if he treats people that way and often that's where we hear the justice of God called into question and that in many ways is the direct opposite of the question about God's justice that the children of Israel were asking at the time and it's actually the direct opposite of the question we usually hear about God's justice all the way through the record of scripture and um, so we actually hear this the other way around, whereas in our culture people tend to say, well how could God be fair and just if he judges? It's what the children of Israel were saying, how can God be fair and just given that he hasn't yet judged the, the Egyptians? It was exactly the opposite question. How could he stand back and allow the sort of evil to, that's happened to us for these last 500 years? How, why would he just stand and watch that? It's the same question you notice when Paul's writing to the Romans. Thousand years later, he picks up the same questions being asked. What's the question in that community that he addresses? It's not why. How can we believe in a God who's entitled to act against human beings and take their lives in judgment? Why would you know? It's not that
1: sort of question. When he's when God stand by and allow human sin on the earth, if he's allowed all this wickedness to take place, it's the same
0: ask God, how long will you look on human evil and not intervene and not step in? So why do we ask people we usually come across in scripture? In 2021 in Britain, why are most people asking the opposite question? In fact, the question I just said to you is a question that some of my students had to answer the last time they sat GCSE is, why would a loving God send me here? It's the opposite question. Why is that? Well, I think a big part of the reason is that most of the the old and the new testament we don't perhaps uh, feel that familiar with the weight of their suffering and the daily burden of being crushed in the way that they were but if you're living in a peaceful order society on the whole and um, perhaps the same questions don't occur to you 500 years if you've lived through a pharaoh who ordered the death of every israelite boy
1: and we don't know how long that lasted for
0: months that it could have been several years that literally edified um if you've lived through those moments and 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 not just for a few weeks not just for a few months but if you've been crushed by that kind of human wickedness generally your theology of sin starts to change your understanding
1: ask a different question God, if you're out there, why are you not doing something about this? Where are you? Why do you allow this man to still be on the throne? The violence. These are persecuted people
0: sharing their story. So we tend to question the love of God. These people tended to question the justice of God. It gets even more complicated when you realize that in our generation, actually,
1: both groups of people... Maybe you're not living through
0: a situation your oppressor hasn't been removed yet you might not be wondering why you're still worrying over the lives of your children and whether you're, you're going to survive as a community you might not have lived through that experience but there are people in our society even in our country who that is their daily experience and certainly if you go outside the uk that's going on on our planet today i walked past your poster for Manumit coffee when i came in here today and it's a reminder to me that this church is seeking to do something about that. That story of being crushed and oppressed in slavery as a result of human sin is still playing out all around us today. So we have some communities on earth who are questioning uh, the love of God on the basis that here on the earth today whose question is much more like the Israelite, when he hasn't taken my oppressor out of the equation and it begins to seem very complicated when you've got half the human race questioning God's justice and the other half questioning his mercy but thank God he holds on to both in perfect tension understand how it all works but what if you look back over the story of scripture how God seems to answer that question is you get these hinge moments he allows time for repentance and that allows space for human suffering as well, but he doesn't allow it forever, and there come these moments in human history when he turns the door, the hinges swing, and the door turns, and that's a moment we're about to see. His justice and his mercy are revealed, and they're revealed in devastating power, and some, like the Israelite slaves, walk away with their chains broken and their hearts set free, and they they walk away singing songs of worship, blown away by the deliverance they've just lived through, and other people, when the justice and the mercy of God comes, they feel the impact too, um, and it doesn't set them free. It has the opposite effect. But God does move in human history, and he, if there's a situation that's been going on for
1: too long, um, be uh, liberating.
0: It can be It can be history-changing, and that's the moment we're about. And moments that james burns recorded in his book too i think of them as suddenlies scripture gives us the various ones of these we sometimes think that maybe the way human history is going to be linear it's going to build one year to the next it's going to be progressive but it seems to be slightly different to that if you look over the broad sweep of scripture it seems like we get a series of suddenlies what you get is waiting generations. as they go on for hundreds of years like the children of israel nearly 500 years Then you get this lightning moment of a suddenly, God intervenes and everything changes in one go. And then you get after that, this: how do we hold on to what God did? How do we remember the story? There's a few examples. This one that we're looking at now, we had about 500 years from Abraham to Moses. We then had a suddenly that we're about to see in this story. And from then on, you then get the Joshua generation that has to keep the story alive and march on and find out what happens next. You get another suddenly a bit later on. If you go on from Joshua and fast forward about a thousand years, they don't live in the fullness of this promise that they're going to go and inherit the promised land and have a country of their own. Somehow that promise just doesn't get fully fulfilled and they find themselves living among their enemies and occasionally falling under oppression again. That goes on for about a thousand years. And then you get this suddenly generation where David steps up, seems to just believe the promises with raw faith, and the whole thing shifts again in the generation. You then get a legacy generation after it. And you could say the same thing happens before Jesus, you get this 500 years of prophetic silence after the last prophet speaks. And if you ever read the writings from those times, they're tragic. And the people, of they began to ask questions about what the prophets had said. And there was an increased fascination among the Hebrews at that time with demonology and the study of Satan, because they were starting to ask themselves, the level of suffering that we're seeing um, in this period of time, some of the oppressors that rose up against Israel was so brutal. And horrific that people start to think i know we've disobeyed god and i know what the prophet said but there seems to be more at play here the suffering and the darkness was so deep and then you get this suddenly visitation that jesus breaks into the midst of that darkness after john the baptist has spoken after 500 years of silence
1: god it exp-
0: and you get this legacy generation what that means for you and me is that we have to find ourselves in the midst of those moments Very few of us get to live in a suddenly generation. And even if we do, that would be a small part of our lives. For the disciples of Jesus, their days walking with him was three and a half years. You could say that the early story
1: of Acts was part of their suddenly. The ascension of Jesus.
0: Still, most of their lives was lived out in the ordinary. Like yours and ours <clears throat> And if you take them, that generation, um, and the other generations we talked about that saw these suddenly, they tend to be framed on either side by several hundred years of people that don't see a visitation of God on that scale. is some big Most of the, the people of God are either waiting for one of these huge moments, or they're remembering it, or a combination like it is for you and me. And I suppose where that lands our challenge is, how do we live after a suddenly, what do we do about it? Some of the challenges you'll notice in this passage is that are about the haste and the, the sudden nature of how God's going to move. It seems as if he's addressing a group of people who are so acclimatized and discouragement. That they're not going to be ready you hear it if you read back through exodus 12 later today you'll hear how many times god uses the word haste this is going to happen overnight guys you've got 500 years of disappointments behind you but i'm coming now this is going to happen now beards in their belts in a brilliant verse that I love and tells them to be ready, you know, to get out that door, unleavened bread. This is going to happen so suddenly. It's going to come like lightning. You're going to have to go. It's difficult to acclimatize to that when you've lived in the humdrum of disappointment for so long. That's one of the challenges of the way God moves. We have to live ready. How do we do that? Tim Keller picks up on that a little bit when he said this. I'm just going to leave up on the screen there. just going to pick out a few phrases of what he says. He talks about some past revivals that were unprecedented when they took place tells you up until 1900 there would never been a fast growing revival in a non-Wesleyan pre-Christian country and then there was and he gives you a few that happened suddenly you know unprecedented out of nowhere he fast forwards after he's given you a few of those and tells you well there's never been a fast growing revival that we know of so far in a post-Christian secular society but every new and great thing is unprecedented until it happens and that's one of the great challenges if you're living in a waiting generation so a question you could ask today is if you're trying to put yourself in the shoes of those Israelites, maybe you haven't lived with 500 years of disappointment and pain, but you may have lived with a slightly smaller scale of waiting and hoping and perhaps going through a cycle of disappointment and hope. As you've done that, maybe a question to think about today is, am I living ready? Am I living ready for a suddenly? When we're crying out to God for our communities, are we living ready for a suddenly? It's a difficult thing to do. We get accustomed and acclimatized to our own experience. But is trying to tell us that when God moves and he does move, he breaks in suddenly and usually his people are not ready for it.
1: <clears throat> if the hinges of
0: history were to spring again tonight, would you be ready? Are you asking him to do that? Another challenge, and perhaps the challenge that we were, we're gonna live with more, is the challenge on the other side of the suddenly. If it happened, but you weren't an eyewitness, if the most powerful and incredible moment of what God has done in your life, you never saw it and you weren't there. And that's true of all of us. Well, how do we live in light of that? How do we acclimatize ourselves to a dramatic moment that we never saw? How does that become our story? In a sense, that's what all of us have got to live with. We live with a, a crucified, resurrected Messiah and that none of us ever saw. The greatest answer to prayer that God could have ever given you, he gave it to you 2,000 years before you were born. And that raises a challenge for us, doesn't it? How do we stay alive with that memory? How do we draw faith from that story? Does it seem to you as if God's help and his limitless power are available to you in light of what Jesus did on the cross? Does it seem to you that there's good reason to place your hope in him and to face the future without fear? If we're alive in that story and that story is alive in us, then that's how it should seem to us. That's how we should be facing our world today. There's no challenge out there that should seem bigger to us than the cross, than the resurrection of Jesus. So how do we get a handle on that? How do we live in light of that? Whilst we're thinking about that, I want us to go back to the first words we heard tonight. What does God say as he's preparing Moses for this hinge moment in history? And he's asking Moses to prepare the people. He says this, this month shall be the beginning, the beginning of months for you. It should be the first month of the year for you. So what clue do we get? One of the things that God's asking the people to do, they're about to live through a cataclysmic moment, through a lightning moment of rapid change, but they're also about to parent a generation that never saw that moment and who are going to have to parent many, many subsequent generations that never saw it, to whom it will be a childhood story. What he's going to want the nation of Israel to do is to live alive with that story, though they never saw it. And how is he going to do it? He's asking them to rewrite their whole calendar and begin their year with, a re, uh, with commemorating this story. Where does he place that story? He wants to place it at a meal table in the family home. That's where he wants this story to come alive. And whatever else is happening in their life, their whole calendar, maybe that symbolizes their whole commitments, their business, their routine. He says, I want you to scrap it all, write it again. Throw out the calendar you used to keep. Here's a new one, it starts today. So part of the idea that what God's trying to hand to the Israelites is I want you to rewrite your story and I want you to begin it now. There's something really key about beginnings in scripture. So I want to ask you, which beginnings do you mark and how do you do it? Where does your story start? How do you start your story and what God did for you? If you look at the only song that we're left with in the Psalms that Moses wrote, there's a similar there's an echo of a similar idea that's picked up in this song. This is a psalm he left with the children of Israel. And in the middle there, this is the song of Moses. He says this, Oh, satisfy us with your steadfast love when in the morning that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. What's he saying? He's asking the children of Israel to turn their hearts towards God and to ask him that the, what, he wants, what he wants them to bring before God every morning is that the the memory of his steadfast love would be in the morning before they start their work for the day. What's going to happen if they remember that song? Well, one thing that's going to happen is they're never going to slip into the deception that they've earned in any way, his affection or his attention. Because when are they remembering his steadfast love? It's before they've done anything. They've not started any of their tasks for the day. It's not like they complete their to-do list and Moses asks them to locate their song of worship at the end of the day when they've done everything that they set out to do when they've completed all their duties, secular, religious, and otherwise, all of it. No, he tells them, he asks them to cry out that God's steadfast love would satisfy them in the morning before they did anything. It might safeguard their hearts from the deception that they in any way earned God's love and his affection. It's also going to set a rhythm in their hearts that before they step out their front door every day, what's going to propel them over the threshold is the, the memory of God's steadfast love. When's their year going to begin? It's going to begin with them remembering when he stepped in to save them. How's their day going to begin? It's going to begin with the recollection of his steadfast love. What he's asking them to do is to reset. Every 24-hour period, reset. Every 365-year period, day period, sorry, reset. Keep resetting yourself around the story of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. He's asking them actively to write their story and rewrite their story out of the grace of God, with every new day that starts, with every new year that begins. I want you to begin it in this remembrance of the love of God. Don't do it by yourself. Do it around the dinner table with your family. Share the story. Pass on the memories. There's something about the meal table that makes our hearts a little bit more receptive. Share it in the places where you're affectionate, where you're spending time with the people that you love, not just in your business meetings, in your family gatherings. Start your year. Always begin with this memory of the love of God. That's what Moses is trying to tell the people. How do we do that? Well, as I was kind of mulling this over and trying to get practical, um, I thought I'd share this with you. This is a little uh, testimony book that I decided to make for myself a couple of years ago. And this talk was a helpful way to remind me to dig this out and dust this off um, and try and remember. How do we do this? How do we begin our year in the story of God? How do we begin our day with the memory of his steadfast love? How do you do it without it becoming a dry routine and just stories that have lost their power and their meaning? Well, I think one of the things that scripture points us towards, if you listen to the words of Isaiah, he says, he tells the children of Israel, keep the word and keep the testimony. When they're tempted to listen to false prophets, he says, no, 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 to the law and to the testimony. What's the and to the testimony part? What's he saying? Well, the law, and he wasn't only referring to the rules and the commandments. He was talking about Torah, the story of God, the first five books that they had. So if he said to the law, go back to the stories of Moses and Israel and all the stuff that you've had since you were uh, children, he says, go to the law and also go to the testimony. Well, what's this and the testimony part? That was something that Israel were called to maintain. They were called to keep writing the stories of what God had done in answer to their prayers. I believe there's something that scripture is pointing us towards where there's there's something about our human psychology, the way God's hardwired us, the way he's built our minds and our brains, that if we can pay attention to what he's doing in our story, If we can keep asking and keep looking to him and recording the moments when he comes through, recording the moments when we catch a sense of what he's doing, recording the moments when he answers our prayers, there's something about connecting that story to the story we find in scripture that makes this thing come alive for us. It means that that those scriptures that can become meaningless religious texts to us actually come alive. Our story and the story of God, they fuse and they merge and we begin to see ourselves in that line of the people that he's dealt with in human history, the cross can become to us not just a story we were told in Sunday school, but it can, we can get uh, insights, we can get glimmers. The door can crack open every time he answers one of our prayers and we look back and we connect ourselves. Why did you hear me today? Why did you have mercy on me? Why did you listen? Well, I know why you listened. And we look back to the cross and somehow in some mysterious way that begins to open our hearts, not only to what he's done in our life, but it connects us back to that story where we're supposed to be anchored this one that I wrote down at the front of my book of testimonies was um, when God answered my prayers when I was 15 years old and I'd taken a job working for my dad. And I was supposed to be working for him in a part of town that I realized that morning I didn't know how to get there. Um, and so I jumped on a bus. I knew, uh, you know, what's, which number bus I was supposed to jump on, but I had no clue where I was supposed to get off. I had about a half an hour journey, realized on the bus, I don't know where I'm going here. So I prayed as a 15-year-old, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Please, would you help me? and um, and all i could get as i prayed this prayer like god please would you help was i just felt this quiet insistence in my mind that if if i really trusted him i would close my eyes and i just thought that's the most insane thing to do when you're trying to find your way but i just had this just this quiet insistent thought in my mind if you really trust me and you're really asking me to get you to work you'll close your eyes and i fought against it for five or ten minutes thinking that's, that's ridiculous um and then this thought occurred to me well if i don't know where i'm going why would i what benefit is to me to, to have my eyes open? And so I began to think this was God answering me and that he wanted me to close my eyes and trust him. So I did and closed my eyes on that bus. The red line I've put on Google Maps there and printed and stuck in this scrapbook is the full journey that I did. I closed my eyes and I started to say to God, well, what am I supposed to do next? Uh, how are you going to tell me when I'm supposed to get off this bus? And I didn't get any sort of sense of any answer. So I'm sitting there with my eyes closed for what became about half an hour thinking I'm probably miles away from where I'm supposed to be now. I could be back where I started, I have no idea. Um, And I don't know when I'm supposed to open my eyes, what I'm supposed to do. Uh, When all of a sudden a bus jerked to a halt and catapulted me out of my seat, I found I'd opened my eyes um, unintentionally. And I thought, oh, maybe here's the place. So I got off the bus, looked around, and I couldn't see Marple Ridge College where my dad had told me to go. So I thought, oh, that was probably me getting it wrong. Um, And so I stopped asking God for help and wandered off towards where I thought it might be. Um, It it turned out in exactly the opposite direction of where I was supposed to go. Um, And it got to five minutes until I was supposed to be at work. And that was when I cried out to God again in my desperation not to disappoint my dad and show up late for work. So I prayed, oh God, you seem to be really lost here. Um, Please, would you help me out? And at that moment, a lovely elderly lady walked past me posting something in a, a post box, the first person I'd seen for ages. And I just asked her, Do you know where the Marpa Ridge College is? She very kindly took me back to her house where her husband drove me all the way back to where I'd got off that bus, where it had jerked to a halt, and then 200 meters in the opposite direction from where I'd walked, and there was Marpa Ridge College. It was the closest point I could have got off that bus. And when it jerked to a halt, I opened my eyes. I was 200 meters away from where I was supposed to be. So I look back on that moment as a moment where I feel like God heard and he helped me and he taught me a valuable lesson about walking by faith and not by sight. And what I've tried to do in that book is just record other answers to prayer. You might think it's an insignificant moment, but as they build up and you go back and you look over your testimony, your record of what God's done in your life, what I try and do is have that with scripture open next to it as well. And what are you doing? You're trying to begin your year and begin your day in the recollection and the remembrance of what god's done for you so i'm trying to really encourage you today if you're trying to pick up on these lessons of how do you live as a legacy generation how do you make sure that that story doesn't go dead inside you and it doesn't just become something that doesn't move you you don't you find it really hard to even care about it even focus on it and um, how do you do that well what part of what scripture keeps telling us to do is keep the testimony keep the word and keep the testimony if you look at the word the prophets tend to use They use this word, God, treasure. You know, we're told of Mary when she sees and hears these words about Jesus as he's grown up. She treasured these things, pondered them and treasured them in her heart. And that's often what God's calling us to do. If you're asking why, when I try to worship God, why, when I try to pray, does it just feel like I'm switched off inside? Why does that happen? And why does this other person next to me just seem to weep every time I worship with them in church? What's going on? You know, has God really answered their prayers in a much more significant way than mine? Well, it might be that actually they're just reacting to exactly the same things you know about. It's just that they've been keeping their heart, keeping the testimony, guarding and abiding in God's word. There's, there's a certain way that we can treasure and reflect and remember. And it's as we savor those moments of what God's done in our lives, And then we look back to the cross and we look back to these moments in scripture that they begin to become alive. We start to read those stories, not as an outsider who can't remember the last time God did something like that for them. But as someone who's tasted, and maybe in some small ways, just of the kindness and the affection and the attention of God, we've mulled on it, we've reflected on it, we've treasured it. And that's what can begin to open the human heart, open our hearts so that we we really come alive in this story and it comes alive in us. Um, There's more that I'd love to say, but I've just noticed the time, and I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of these uh, talks on Zoom. I don't know about you, I got very Zoomed out over the last year. Um, And uh, I hope that's not you. Um, I'm just going to leave you then with a final thought, um, which maybe hopefully wraps up this idea of how do we keep the word and how do we keep the testimony? And so just let's zoom in um, into sort of an intersection of one of these moments we've spoken about. I'm going to leave you with this final thought, and maybe we can reflect on it as we start to go our separate ways. And I think Andy's going to come up and have a word with us. So I guess I've been trying to get us to think about how do we treasure these moments when God suddenly moves and there's a hinge moment in history that we never saw. How do we make sure that comes alive in our hearts and we live in it and it feeds us and it, gives, it feeds our faith and it feeds our love for God? Well, let's zoom back into the middle of one of those lightning moments we had on screen earlier. And I want to pick that up alongside the psalm that Andy shared with us to start off with. And uh, hopefully in about two minutes, this will leave us with something to think about. Um, one of the sudden we spoke about earlier was in David's generation. And we hear from scripture about this heart of David and we're often called to have a heart like David. You know, the kings that come after him are always told whether they uh, whether they had a heart like his or not. Um, I'm not going to promise to or pretend to unpack everything about what it means to have a heart like David. But I just want to give you one thought. So Andy shared with us um, at the beginning of this evening some words from Psalm 68. Uh, that's the psalm of david if you look at the very first two lines david says this god will arise his enemies will be scattered and those who hate him will flee before him when he says that he's actually uh he's sharing a song of moses and he's sharing a song that moses sang when he walked through the red sea this moment we started with today and on into the desert it was when moses was about to face a new enemy having seen what god did to the egyptians moses said those words Moses said it slightly differently, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. David, about a thousand years later, slightly more than that, we can see that he's been meditating and ruminating on those words. We hear about David as a young man that he's looking after his dad's sheep and he seems to have a harp or a lute or some kind of instrument where he's writing these psalms that we come across. Seems like he's worshiping, meditating, reflecting on God's word. And he seems to have picked up this song of Moses. What does he say next? It's the same two lines that Moses starts with. David then goes on to say, just like smoke is driven away, you'll drive them away. Just like wax melts before fire, so the wicked will perish before God. You can see that there's an extra layer of colour and poetry and imagery on, these, on this ancient song of Moses. What had David done as he'd worshipped on the hillsides? We're told in the story of David, that he's been delivered once or twice in his own backyard, he says, God's delivered me from the lion and from the bear while I've been watching the sheep. What had he done? He'd, it seems in some way he'd connected those moments when God had heard him and answered his prayer to these ancient stories he'd been handed as an Israelite. He never saw the exodus. He never saw that moment. What he did see was he saw some miniature deliverances in his own backyard. And it seems from reading those Psalms that you can see he's meditated, he's ruminated, he's digested those words. He's watched what God's done in his own life. He's cried out to God in his own moments of pain when he's been facing a scary enemy. And just like Moses, as he marched on to face a new enemy, thought to himself, what did God do last time we were in a situation like this? He's picked up the song of that man and he's made it his own song. In as he's faced his own enemies and his own fears, he's sung that song and the songs developed. There's two new lines and it turns into a new psalm. And that's, I feel like what God is asking us to do in this generation. There are old songs of our people that they sang. Those songs of David, we're supposed to dust them off the shelf. Those psalms are supposed to become our own heart language as we face our own lions and bears, as we face our own crisis moments, our own enemies. What we're supposed to do, we're supposed to look back. We're supposed to cry out. And then when he delivers us, what do we do? We keep the testimony. We keep that moment. Write it down somewhere. Treasure it. Go back to it. Make that your song in the morning. Make it your song on January the 1st when you're sitting with your children after or your family and after new year's eve where do you start your year where do you start your day god's calling us to begin our day with the stories of his faithfulness and to connect the stories that we see in our own generation the little moments and the little glimmers that we get he wants us to connect them with these mighty hinge moments in history and see for ourselves that that god who moved in that devastating power who raised jesus from the dead who led the children of israel through the waters and out of 500 years of oppression when you guys are drinking a manumit coffee and praying for those slaves that need deliverance, we're supposed to be the people who pray because we know that he showed up in our backyard. We know he showed up in our story and we know he showed up for the children of Israel. It's the same God. It's the same grace. And that's supposed to be as we ruminate, as we meditate, that's supposed to be coming alive in our hearts and feeding us as we cry out to him for the things that still need to shift on this planet. So as we think about David's heart, holding on to those songs of his people from his younger days and adding his own lines and adding his own moments, let's just carry that before God as we come into land. I'm going to invite Andy to come back and join us. And I want to just still ourselves for a moment and think about how we might be able to catch hold of the song that we've heard tonight. What's that song of deliverance? How can you catch it? What is it that God's done for you that might feel small in comparison that you might be able to add as a new chapter, as a new line to that story? And how can we hold those stories together and share them around our dinner tables and start to sing about them until that becomes our reminder of his steadfast love in the morning?